Welcome to Both Sides TV. I'm super excited today to welcome my guest. My guest today is Tim Shigel. Both as an investor in Upfront Ventures, you're one of our limited partners mm -hmm. in a fund called Centrifuge, but also former entrepreneur, former venture capitalist, and founder of a company I'm sure everyone's heard of share this. Welcome. Thank you. So you were an entrepreneur, but right. you abandoned the word of world of entrepreneurship to become a limited partner who invests in VC funds. Tell us how that journey began. Well, I don't know if I abandoned it. I'm yeah. amplifying it. <laughs> okay. That's right, because you're still executive I'm helping chairman. a lot of entrepreneurs there now. You go. And I, so I still get to be entrepreneur vicariously through others. There that, you go. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's been great. Centrifuge is about two years old, coming up on two yeah. years old. And uh, we're investing in great venture partners around the country and tying them into our community and, and providing them access to our strategic investors, which include Procter & Gamble and Kroger's and Macy's and Duke Energy and Luxottica, uh, to help the VCs make better decisions in terms of understanding where the market is, as well as to help them see all the talent that we have in Cincinnati and help them find great venture partners. And so these people invest in your fund. You, in turn, invest in VC funds. VCs, in turn, invest in entrepreneurs. But I guess the end result that you're after is innovators getting access to some of America's greatest companies. And even though there's some middlemen to make that happen, the real goal is connecting those, I'd imagine. That's right. And really, it's, it is no more complicated than it's, it's an accelerator, if you will. Yeah. Right? We're seeing what the market's looking for and matching them up with innovation at the earliest stage. And I presume that's why they invested in you, because the, your fund is how big? Do you announce that or no? About $60 million. $60 million. So I guess that's a small amount of money for these companies. They must be more after access to innovation than in capital, right? Yeah, clearly companies like Procter & Gamble can find other ways to invest their money. Yeah. But if we can just find them one startup that gets them a fraction of a percent more efficient in their supply chain or with their customers, it could pay for itself for decades. So are you having a hard time actually keeping companies in Cincinnati? I mean, are the best entrepreneurs that are being pulled by VCs to San Francisco or New York? Uh, right now, we're seeing a net increase in those entrepreneurs uh, because of uh, the amount of services we have and the culture that we've built, mm -hmm. we're really attracting a lot of entrepreneurs with programs like the Brandry and others. Uh, we, are, we often talk about being advocates for the entrepreneurs. So um, we have a number of cases of folks moving to Cincinnati, staying, wanting to stay. They see the advantages. You what, can do what business. Do you, what do you see as those advantages? Well, one, you can, uh, first of all, the, the standard of living is great. Right. Right. Um, and that maybe goes without saying. But the access to these customers and, and companies, huge advantage. We also have, you know, University of Cincinnati, 40, uh, 47, 48,000 students, I think, this, okay. this year. Incoming class, 6,600 students, um, ranked in the top 10 in a number of different categories. Um, Xavier University, Northern Kentucky University, University of Kentucky, just down the road. So, right. so you have access to a lot of talent coming straight out of the university. A lot of great young talent. And... Um, in some cases, some companies may set up an office in New York or right. in the Bay Area, uh, but it's actually easier for them to set up the core operation in Cincinnati. And now with the cloud and, and whatnot, people can do work anywhere. And I'm guessing that you guys have a lot of marketing-led companies because there must be a lot of people coming out of Procter & Gamble wanting to do startups or people who have like general-purpose marketing skills. So, yeah, the, the, within Cincinnati, the, the, the major metro region is about 60,000 people with a branding, marketing, creative background. Okay. So you're right. They come with that perspective. And, um, uh, and that's why you see something like the Brandry 
right. pop up, right? Where the brand and understand that consumer insight, which I think is what it's really all about. Those folks, um, it's not just marketing. It's mm -hmm. really understanding consumers, consumer behavior. But in behavior. a way, wouldn't like there be a perfect marriage between people in Cincinnati, like the great consumer product marketing people and mm -hmm. retailers who understand consumers and how to move product with Silicon Valley, which is known for its technology prowess, but perhaps not understanding consumers. Uh, there is, and that's where there's, I think this is about building bridges. Mm -hmm. It's not Cincinnati in isolation. Right. And you know, we, we operate in a global, global economy today anyway, right? So odds are you're gonna have a presence and a connection to, to, to both coasts. But I'll give you an example. We have uh, Rodney Williams, CEO of, mm -hmm. of Listener, who's a twice, yeah. PNG PNG brand manager. Yeah. Who uh, through his research came up with some insights, and that led to Listener. Right. And uh, it's good. It, they just recently were funded three and a half million dollar round, and um, they're off to the races. And if I live in New York and have a startup, I live in San Francisco, I have a startup, or frankly anywhere in the country, and I'm not part of the brandery, and I'm not funded by Upfront or one of your companies. How does one, like, how do they get access? Because I presume you still want them to come to Cincinnati and spend time there and set up shop. I mean, what's a way to, like, integrate better with Cincinnati? Well, we're setting up a number of programs. Mm -hmm. We have, well, an innovation exchange, we call it, IX Cincinnati, coming up in September, okay. where uh, it's there for not only the Cincinnati companies, but for anybody. We want to bring all the world's competition there to compete for mobile commerce or interactive retail with a Kroger and a P&G or a Luxottica. Yeah. So we're inviting all comers and trying to raise the bar. You should tell people what Luxottica is. I think a lot of people know it, but a lot of people don't probably know the company brand. Right, so Luxottica is an Italian company. It's the it's the world's leading fashion eyewear company. So if you wear Ray-Bans or Oakleys, it's Luxottica. Yeah. And their US presence is in Cincinnati. Because most people know the brand names rather than the exactly. corporate name. Right, and matter of fact, when uh, Luxottica first stepped in Cincinnati, I had no idea who they were. Yeah. And then started investigating it and found out it's massive. When I was there, I was surprised just how many huge companies are in Cincinnati. Right, right. Yeah, we also have GE Aviation. Okay. And so they're tapping into an area that is really exciting around 3D printing or as they would call it, additive manufacturing. Okay. Which is a cycle of innovation that's gonna last the next 30 years. Yeah. I mean, you look at how it's transforming manufacturing and no longer having to build huge plants, but build micro, micro manufacturing facilities around the right. country that print one-off products for people. Uh, it's it, there, there's a ton of innovation that's going to be driven through. So G manufacturing increasingly is being distributed rather than centralized. Right, and uh, and personalized as well. Right. right? So um, uh, what you're going to see is a whole corridor develop. I think from Detroit, Michigan on down um, with those core manufacturing capabilities, but now using these tools of additive manufacturing. Which, again, if when, once you look into it, you find out that. Even the design tools, the CAD tools that people used to use, yeah. have to be totally reinvented okay. for the additive manufacturing process. So that's why I say it's going to take 30 years, because that, that means you have to reinvent the testing and uh, uh, certification criteria for products. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a long cycle, and there's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs in that area. And <clears throat> you live in Cincinnati now, but you must know the broader Ohio area. My understanding is you're from Cleveland? Cleveland originally. You yeah. Brownies fan? or? Uh, not so converted. much. We've been 25 years <laughs> in Cincinnati yeah, now, so yeah, guy. cheering for Andy Dalton. Yeah. And uh, so tell, tell me what's going on in the broader Ohio. I keep reading about, I guess, uh, Mark Kwame went out there and set up a fund and 
Yeah. There seems to be a lot of energy around venture these days. Right. So Mark Kwame and Chris Olson from and Sequoia. He, and he's just so we, so they know he was a partner at Sequoia. Right. Right. Uh, so people are real excited about them being there. He's bringing a lot of uh, you know his experience mm -hmm. uh, to the region and funding a number of different companies. Matter of fact, in Cincinnati, funded a company called Road Trippers. Okay. Uh, which is a really cool um, young company, and. Um, it's it's a great shot in the arm, I think, and it's uh, again kind of raising the game across the board. And do you find that means that people in Ohio are able to stay in Ohio and not have to locate somewhere else? Absolutely, the support's there. Yeah. I think when it comes to the locating, it's not driven necessarily by the investors; it's more driven by the talent, the tech talent. So that's well, you say that, but my observation, I mean, even in a place like LA, we're mm -hmm. the second largest city in America, mm -hmm. and you would imagine. If you didn't want to leave here, you wouldn't have to leave. Mm -hmm. But my experience is if someone gives you five million bucks from Silicon Valley and says, we'd really like you to be here, if you're young and not well-established and it's an early stage company, a lot of people do get plucked. They might. So far, what we've seen are uh, examples like Dotloop. Mm -hmm. uh, Trinity Ventures invest in Dotloop. Okay. Dotloop is transforming the way residential real estate transactions take place. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Austin Allison's the founder CEO in Cincinnati. Yep. Trinity led the round, the Series A round. He has an office in San Francisco where he was able to get some specialized talent, people that came from a Google or Yahoo or really understood you know, consumer web. Mm -hmm. But the bulk of the employees are still in Cincinnati. Okay. So they kept both and they see the advantages of both. Uh, it's so one, one thing I'd like to say, Tim, and I say this, I, I said it when I was in Cincinnati recently, yeah, I yeah. say it every time I travel, which is... <clears throat> If you live somewhere where there's not as much capital, and increasingly there's more capital sources in Ohio, which is great, but if you want to broaden the scope, what I recommend you do is if you travel to California, you travel to New York, you travel to uh, Boston, if you tell the venture capital fund that I will do six board meetings a year in your location, I only want you to come to my location twice a year. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds unfair, mm -hmm. but if your goal is to maximize the probability of your raising capital, if you lighten the burden so that your investor doesn't think they're going to come eight times a year to Cincinnati, eight times a year to Detroit, eight times a year to you name it, Atlanta, I think you increase the probability to get funded. And the reason I say it is this, what people don't understand about venture capitalists is Already, I mean, I'm based in LA. Already, I'm in New York, call it six or eight times a year. I'm in San Francisco 12 to 14 times mm -hmm. a year. By attending conferences, let's say I travel to another six or seven locations per year. So, if you want to add eight trips a year, let's say there's eight board meetings a year to anywhere else in the country, that's a tough ask. Now, I would definitely do it. I'm more likely to wait to a slightly later stage company. But if someone said to me, I'll split it four and four, you come out four times a year, I'll come out four times a year, or six and two, right. I think you're going to increase the probability to get funding. The key is A, to be flexible. Uh, B is knowing who that venture partner is. Yeah. If I'm coming to you for that money because I know you've done three other deals that look like mine, yeah. and therefore you're the perfect investor, yeah. and I need to come to your place for the board meeting, so be it. Let me, flip, let me flip it around to say this, yep. Tim, which is obviously in a world where you have choice, right? Yep. You can yep. make these choices. Yep. I guess what I'm saying is if you take the issue off the table, you make it easier for Absolutely. people to want to invest time. Because the biggest problem that VCs have, just from my experience, and I'm sure you've seen similar, is 
I might fall in love with a company in Austin, Texas, right? Mm -hmm. In Boulder, Colorado, in Seattle, in Portland. I may fall in love with that. But if in the first instance, mentally, I have a barrier about traveling eight times a year there, I may not dig in as much as I otherwise would. If you, as you said, if you're flexible, I may dig in more. And by the time we're done, I may say it's worth going six right. or eight times a year. I just think you expand the realm of possibility by being flexible. Absolutely. And, don't, and, and you shouldn't put that barrier up front. Yes. No, by no means. But if you don't take it off the table, it'll be in their it'll mind. In their That's minds. what I'm saying. It's like the elephant in yeah, the room. Yeah. You have to deal with the elephant in the room because they're thinking it. You know, right, whether right. you said or not, they're thinking it eight times a year. Do I, you know. And, uh, and in the end of the day, like if they start coming twice a year, my guess is eventually they come four times or six times a year. Cause then you, it'll make sense at that point. Yeah, for right, sure. Right. sure. Now you got into this business of being an LP about 18 months ago or so, yep. but before that you were an entrepreneur. And so tell me about share this, and like how did that come about? So, so actually before that I was in a venture firm. Okay. So I was in blue chip venture. So you've done it all. I've done all three spots, the entrepreneur, the, uh, the, the VC, the GP, and the LP. Okay. Uh, so uh, at Blue Chip, I was there for nine years. It was okay. the first venture firm in Cincinnati. Okay. And we ended up having four funds, $600 million under management. Okay. And uh, did a number of media tech deals. And uh, the deal I led within our shop was advertising.com, mm -hmm. which was good exit. A, a pretty good exit, good success story. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it was. It was. How was that based in Baltimore? Baltimore. Yeah, right. right. Ferber yeah. Brothers. Yeah. And they've gone on to do another startup. Remind videology. Me. Okay, it's, videology. It's, yeah, yeah, Scotts. So, uh, it wasn't too long after that that, as I was um, seeing a lot of other ad tech companies, I was looking for what's what's really going to be the game changer, and came to the conclusion that sharing was going to be a major driver of behavior on the web. Yep. And so, started share this and eventually left the venture, the confines of the venture firm. You went native. To, yeah, I went native, and uh, that was in late 2007, early 2008, and okay. um, launched Share This. We're now on 3 million websites, reaching 700 million people, and ended up setting up headquarters in Palo Alto. Okay. And uh, have moved the uh, last couple of years to roll a chairman. So I'm still in Cincinnati. My family, my kids are in Cincinnati. I travel a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Why does the world need share this? What problem is it solving? Um, ultimately, there's so much information, there's no way any of us could possibly consume it all, right? So sharing is becoming the filter to organize and consume information, right? Okay. The issue is that we share in a lot of different ways. So we don't believe there's necessarily just one platform. I share certain types of content with certain types of people via Facebook, others via Twitter, others via Pinterest. Yeah. We support upwards of 150 different types of services, and new services can come out of the blue, like Pinterest did, I think. Yeah. Um, so we are, we are platform agnostic. So is the benefit for the publisher, let's say, that I don't have to figure out how to integrate with six different vendors, and then when the next three come along, I gotta figure those out, I just have one platform? Right, that is the initial benefit, is publishers have a one-stop shop, and they get the analytics. Yeah. So we say, look, your, your audience and your content is gonna drive which social channels are being used, you need to have the insights to know how to tailor that content so that you can create an audience that is your best syndication partner. Right. Right. And you talked to me last time we were talking about share this about the fact that even in the social web, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, the overwhelming majority of content that people are sharing actually come from 
other sources, right? And the rest that's of the web. The right? rest of the web. And that's what you're, in a way, like shoveling all the stuff from the rest of the web and it gets funneled through these two or three big networks. Right, right? and it, it's still early in the, in, the, in the whole social game, I think. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, though, you do have the publishers of that content that are going to be interested in owning their audience, okay. right? not just giving it up to one channel or another. And so um, we think we're in a good position to help them with that and to benefit by the, um, the information and the insights and ultimately the ad revenue and traffic that's associated with socially driven uh, content and traffic, right? That's on their platform, on platforms they can own. So that's interesting is, if you think about it, publishers, the people who actually control the eyeballs in the first place, are driving traffic to social web and making no money out of it because all the ads then are made by the social networks. Right. So in a way, do you think the publishers are you trying to arm them to be able to retain some of their... Exactly. I think ultimately they need more control over their audience, their visitors, as well as the revenue that they generate uh, on their site. And um, so that's why we introduced things like SQI, Social Quality Index. is a way for us to measure a site, and let them see for themselves by category, you know, sports, food and drink, etc., how they stack up in terms of what percent of their traffic is coming via social referral. Okay. Right, which is really interesting statistic. So that's not, so it's interesting. I was thinking in terms of, I install share this widget on my website, mm -hmm. and I was thinking in terms of the analytics of driving it into social, but you're actually saying the same is true in reverse. They get clicks that are coming back to their website and you're showing them what's converting and what's coming in and from where. And, and the people coming back in are actually extremely valuable right. right if I share something with you it's not because I need it right it's because you need it right and so although under, the fact that you share it with me says a lot about you I can learn about you I mean sure but if you're if you're evaluating a new car mm -hmm. I may have made that decision two years ago right and I say hey Mark you need to check out this review of you know XYZ brand I, I get I get that yep. but uh, and maybe I'm wrong you can say I'm wrong yep. but what I'm imagining is for example, if you share lots of car stuff, I can probably target you as a car enthusiast. If you're sharing lots of Republican news, I probably know something about your political beliefs. If you're sharing lots of, oh, I won't say that. I, would, I was trying to, <laughs> trying to think what, what I can say on camera. Uh, if you're sharing, uh, you're a woman and you're well, sharing there's, there's, folic acid stuff, I might imply that you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant. It's not necessarily that simple. So okay. I may be sharing a lot of that with you that's turning into noise and garbage because you hear too much of it from me. Okay. Right? So uh, it's really looking at a broad base. When you look across 700 million people, mm -hmm. you see that what people share in their, in their topic mm -hmm. isn't necessarily so sustained over a long period of time. Like I may be very interested in a certain topic for a couple of days. Yeah. And it turns out it's just like search. Right. Where the timing and relevancy is extremely important. It mm -hmm. may be just minutes or hours. And you provide all that. And because of our broad reach, we can actually see that. So I may be very influential on the topic of cars to four people for a week. But I'm not a car blogger. But I'm very influential to those four people. Right. Right. So the key is how do you build a market for four people at a time? Well, you, you develop a large reach. And you can uh, aggregate those audiences to a large car buying audience. And you're not CEO any longer. Were you CEO for a while, I presume? Right, yeah. Okay, you founded it. Right. And uh, so what is your role now? I'm chairman, chairman. so uh, a non-executive non chairman. Non-executive chairman. So I found uh, 
Kurt Abrahamson, okay. who was a co-founder, president of Jupiter Media mm -hmm. back in the day that I went public. Yeah. And then he was at Google and uh, was part of launching AdSense. I think Josh Harris founded Jupiter, didn't he? Do you remember Josh? I didn't know Josh, okay. but Kurt was with, I believe, with him. And, okay. um, and then at Google launched AdSense and worked for Tim Armstrong okay. uh, in uh, running sales operations for Google. Uh, so he had a great background, lived in the Bay Area, and uh, we got to know each other and said he, he'd be great for you know being the CEO. A lot of entrepreneurs ask this question, how do you know when it's time to replace yourself? I mean, you obviously, I presume, had a role in deciding the company needed a CEO, and mm -hmm. I guess to some extent, either personal choice you wanted to be uh, more time in Cincinnati or some other choice, but how do you know when it's time to give up control? Uh, I think the uh, it's it's more about what's right for the company, not right. necessarily just what's right for me. Okay. Right? So the company got to a stage where, you know, I'm recruiting folks for the team on the West Coast, but I don't live there. Mm -hmm. Right. How do you do that? Right. Right. And so uh, when you if you really put yourself into what's what's the right thing for the company and what skill do I bring to the table, and what skill does somebody else bring to the table, um, it starts to make it pretty clear. But you know, it's it's always tough. But it's. The most important thing is finding the right person, the right partner. And Kurt and I are, you know, great complement and, and talk all the time. And what was in your mind? What were you thinking? I'm looking for X. I mean, how do people know? Like you're handing your baby over to someone else. Well, his background, uh, you know, with Google mm -hmm. uh, and AdSense and what it meant for publishers, et cetera, was very relevant, obviously. Um, understanding the scaling part of the organization. So I got it through the, the early years of distributing the, the tools through the beginning of generating revenue and we were on a very fast ramp uh, and then it became a question of accelerating that even further uh, and there's still product work that's going on and and leading that strategic roadmap where we're still very much in, you know working together on that um, but a lot of that scaling he had a lot more direct experience with gotcha well last line of questioning mm -hmm. you're at centrifuge now you've gone from the role of VC to the role of entrepreneur to the role of limited partner who funds VCs. How do you find this role different? I mean, a lot of people probably have no idea what, what the role of an LP is. Um, well, I don't know if I do either yet. Yeah, <laughs> the re figuring it out. What was interesting though was I was being an advocate for those entrepreneurs. Yeah. I know what they go through, both from the funding side as well as you know the fundraising side. And so I see myself as an advocate for the entrepreneur and I'm a matchmaker, right? So I have my investors those strategic corporate partners. I have my venture partners like yourself yep. and then the entrepreneurs. And it's about finding the right matches and putting people from, in the right from network. From a marketing perspective, it seems like you could almost market like Intel inside because if you could market directly to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are thinking having Centrifuge involved would get me access to Procter & Gamble and Kroger and Macy's and you know, Duke or whoever their target client is, Maybe that would help you then get access to VCs. Yeah, I think that's gonna. Um, you know, we're on the first fund only yeah. you know, 18 months or so into it. So uh, I think as we build each success story, that's gonna become clearer and clearer, and then we'll have to go back to working on our branding. Yeah. Uh, so. But you're in but speaking, Cincinnati. It should be easy. It should be easy. But speaking of branding, I, I'm I'm burning up here. What's up with the what's oh, up with the jacket? you know, so we're outside. It's summer. It's August. It's not quite as humid as maybe Cincinnati, no. but it is summer. And uh, we just invested in this new company. It's mm -hmm. retention. Well, it's not new company. It's new for us. Retention Science. So what actually, do do? very relevant to to your guys' world. So they help e-commerce companies, not just e-commerce companies, but they help 
e-commerce companies retarget existing customers. So they look at the behavior of your customer base and they help you through data, through science, to not only retain existing mm -hmm. customers, but remarket to them and drive them back to, to buy product. So how are they different from a rich relevance? I don't know rich relevance very well. So I, I can't tell you the They're better. I'm sure that's Much why you better. invested. But, uh, <laughs> well, to, to be fair, uh, my partner, Greg, who focuses on e-commerce, did a review of the market and, and decided to work closely with these guys. Yeah. And as a VC, honestly, you, you give your own contributions. Uh, Greg knows the topic very well. Um, I focus more on the entrepreneur. Jerry Zhao uh, was raised by a single mother um, on the poverty line in, uh, uh, in Taiwan and uh, was in the top 0.1% uh, testing-wise in Taiwan and earned the ability to uh, have a scholarship to the United States. Wow. And with a single mom, with no money, uh, with no real opportunity. In fact, as an entrepreneur, when he was young, after his friends had disappeared, he went and picked up like plastic bottles and anything to make extra money. But he showed up here in Los Angeles with no family at, I think, like 14 years old on his own. And he had to find a host family to live with. He had a scholarship to a high school here, and he spoke almost no English. When he got here, he had to study ESL, English as a second language, for two years. Uh, then went through the full high school program, gra graduated valedictorian, uh, got into Cal, went to Berkeley, uh, graduated Berkeley in three years, and uh, started a company. And you know, built a company that I think had some modicum of success. I don't really know what the outcome was. And this is his second company. How do you not admire somebody that goes through all that? I'm I mean, telling you, that the, I, I'm it's, always uh, impressed. And, and the guy's like passion and energy for the topic. And he's, yeah. you know, he's, you know, we look for people with a higher purpose that they're doing this for more than just a quick buck or a like quick The founders of Osmo. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and you'll remember that story. Yeah. Very similar. Uh, the founder of Osmo grew up, up without electricity and, uh, you know, is very accomplished in his field, which is computer vision. And uh, then many years later, he was eight years at Google working in computer vision, graduated IIT, which is like the MIT mm -hmm. of India, as you right. know. And then he had kids and he started getting concerned that everyone's kids were sitting on their couches staring at devices all day and he originally called the company tangible play because mm -hmm. he wanted to connote in fact that's still the company name this idea of get kids off the couch and get them in the physical world again and you know they won't abandon digital so how do you integrate it and it's totally mission driven and you know if we could do 10 more mission driven companies we'd like to so, so my sister was just visiting us this weekend okay and i gave one to my nephew awesome who's going on 11. yeah the problem was I couldn't get it out of his dad's hands first. <laughs> so, so it was a hit. We're, we're shipping product now. I mean, you know, you read a lot of press about people who do crowdsourcing. Yeah. Um, but we're actually shipping product. Uh, we started shipping last week. We've sold, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, so I'll just say in a macro number, we sold in the tens of thousands of wow. units within the first two months. And we have a whole pipeline of games that are due out for the end of the year. So... 
I'll tell you off camera the actual figures, but I'm super Can't excited by, by how it's going. So anyway, thank you very much for coming to yeah, LA. Thanks for having me. Thank you for the support that you've given to Upfront Ventures. Thank you for doing uh, the good work of connecting great companies in Cincinnati with people like me. I know, and I wrote about it, as you know, on my blog, but just the ability for venture capitalists and then our portfolio companies to really get to the right people in Cincinnati in senior roles, I think it's very meaningful. So I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks. Mark.